The Gong Show won't be seen tonight, so we can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X Files. Welcome to The Gen X Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about The, the Six, Six Million Dollar, dollar Man. That's his bionics freezing up. Oh, he's when he's, yeah. Because he has one weakness. The cold. And that is the cold. Yes, and Jamie Summers. <laughs> um, oh, sweet Jamie. Oh, yeah. i got to sing that song at <laughs> some point. Sing that song. Uh, uh, man. Okay, so welcome to February. This yes. is uh, because it's the love month, and I love nothing except for television and <laughs> and movies entertainment yes i don't love people um no uh but these are our first loves uh the the, sh- the things that got us into the things so yeah. like uh yeah. for me the six million dollar man was the first show the tv show that really hooked me i had liked tv ever since i was born yeah but this was the show that like was the first one where i'm like i gotta watch this all the time this right. is, i got obsessed with it I had the big old doll to the chagrin of the old man, and I had a little like you my mean action figure. Well, it was, let's be <laughs> honest, it was a doll. That was a big ass doll. Yeah, but my sister clued me in. I totally forgot because I used to dress up when I'd watch the Hulk. I would dress up and I would change into the Hulk when the Hulk changed. I had my little yeah. cut off jeans and my ripped up shirt. Yeah, and a lot of rage. But uh, I also uh, apparently had a little red tracksuit that I would oh. put on. As my six million dollar man costume. Nice. I was such a weird kid. Anyway, uh, so that's for me. And then next week we're doing uh, uh, Quantum Leap. Quantum Leap. That was my first love. That got me into TV. Hour long dramas. I I definitely watched sitcoms before that. Well, not just TV. It got you into time travel. Yeah, that was the big thing. Is that I am a huge time travel nerd, and and I I I was too young really for like Back to the Future and to really understand it. But Quantum Leap was the first thing where it was like. You're essentially becoming someone else in a different time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fun. It's been really fun rewatching. Uh, I have not watched it in a long time. Yeah, and yeah. man, is it so the '80s. Oh, it's great. And then we're closing out with uh, Stephen King, who basically, for both of us, kind of got us into reading. And yes, I am horror. So excited to talk about '70s and '80s Stephen King. We don't talk about oh, yeah. books very often. No, we don't. on the show. So I'm excited to talk about that. That'd be nice. And our both of our stories of reading Stephen King way too young. <laughs> yes, yes. It explains a lot. Uh, it explains quite a bit. Oh, man. I have not watched The Six Million Dollar Man since it was on. I don't, I don't know why yeah. I never did a rewatch. You know, I rewatched all of my uh, old faves. But yeah. for some reason, I never rewatched this. Maybe I just couldn't find it or whatever. But Well, you were, I mean, you were pretty young when it first started. Yes, I was very young. Maybe, and maybe it didn't have that kind of indelible memory like like Magnum did and stuff when you were a little older. Well, no. What's crazy is it did, and 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 <laughs> and I I love the show, but I think you may be right that when I was really young, yeah, you know, like the things that you like, it's like I'm not rewatching Captain Kangaroo, <laughs> Sesame you know, Street, yeah. or uh, Mr. Rogers, <laughs> but right. but still rewatching it again, it is such a good show. Yeah. Yeah, I had never seen it. I'd never watched it, and I got so sucked in so fast. <laughs> it is a show that has no idea what it is. <laughs> That's what makes it so and great. And that, 
works to its benefit instead yeah. of its detriment with most shows. You yeah. would think, ah, oh, well, you know, it's kind of – but it also is such an amazing time, time capsule for the 70s because they hit every fad, <laughs> every one on that show. All of them. Uh, gliders. You remember when people used to, yeah. to tow up those gliders and they would. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a show about that. Square <laughs> dancing, roller derby, <laughs> nice. sharks, oh. Bigfoot. Oh, yeah. Uh, Moonshining. Uh, aliens. You, aliens. You name it. They had it. Uh, and and <laughs> literally them just reading the paper going, all right, <laughs> let's do this. And uh, some of your favorite. Actors from the 70s and 80s made their debut or showed up on this show. Yeah, there were a lot of guest stars. And it's watching it again, too. Steve Austin is such a good role model. Yes. Without being cloying. You know yeah. what I mean? Without being like too goody goody. Because the MFR does cheat, man. He yeah, uses he... his Bionics to, uh, sure. to win. Sure. Well, he's got a, he's a very competitive I guy. I mean, would you not? Well, I mean, that's the thing that I like about it is, yes, everybody would. Yeah. And instead of, you know, like all, like Superman and everything, oh, I can't use my powers. He's like, have you. I'm going to shoot this basketball from. I- <laughs> Do you remember when I crashed and almost died? I deserve this. Yes. yes. Oh, I'm going to cheat at arm wrestling because I'm a jerk. But yeah, what but else? inevitably the other guy is some kind of dick that is like deserves it. No, he no. deserves it. He did ah. it to his buddy as he like beat his best friend. But then he he, he owned up to it. Well, he see, there to. you go. That's Steve Austin. Because well, it's uh, what's your clearance level, buddy? If you're yeah. not clearance level six, you don't get to know about the bionic. That is true. He's very secretive. But uh and <laughs> and the bionic woman and the Bigfoot arc. Oh my god, I <laughs> that was. <laughs> That was the moment when Jim told me that there was Bigfoot, and I was just like, what? Yeah. And it worked so well. Because it's not like any other Bigfoot you've ever <laughs> seen. it made no sense at all. The costume's awful, by the way. You can see the <laughs> zipper up the back. But, uh, oh, my God. They, I just, they wrestled pretty good. They Look, well, because the first – well, we'll get into it. But, yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but it's just – if you haven't seen this show, you should watch it. Yeah. It's, it is on Peacock. It is available. Uh, the first three TV movies and the entire series is available on Peacock. And really, uh, there's stuff after that. But you could stop at the end of the I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely want to see the movies. I want to see how that uh, plays out. I, I was able to find one. We'll talk about it more later. But I was able to find one on YouTube. Uh, I think another was like an Italian. And then the third one, the very last one. Just is gone. Wow. Like I could not find it anywhere. You got to buy the DVDs, apparently. Yes, actually, I, I think the only place that's available is on the full set. That's why we're we're championing uh, physical media this physical year. Physical media this year, year. Yeah. physical media. Yeah, and you can pick up the entire series on DVD for like sixty bucks. Yeah, it's not very much. Blu-ray, a uh, hundred and something, but you don't need Blu-ray. D- for what this. do you need Blu-ray for? And I mean, it comes with all. Five seasons plus all the movies. Six TV movies. You got it all. And then for an extra 19 bucks, pick yourself up The Bionic Woman. Oh, yeah. My first crush. I'm actually really excited to start watching that show, too. (laughs) Oh, she's great. Uh, And it takes place in Ojai, which uh, not a lot of stuff does. Oh, Ojai. All right. Well, let's get into it. All right. Let's get into it. talk about it forever. (laughs) Take yourself back to 1973. Wow. March 7th, the first of three The Six Million Dollar Man TV movies airs. On May 14th, Skylab, the United States' first space station, is launched. That was uh, such a big deal. Yeah, and I also, I didn't realize, but 
Skyline wasn't that big. I thought it was much bigger than it was. No, it just had a big name. Um, <laughs> that's another thing about the show that totally because I was really into space as a yeah, kid, as right, any kid right. in the seventies. Well, of course, one of my very first memories is one of the moon watching one of the moon landings. Probably mm-hmm. you know the seventies, mm-hmm. of course. I doubt I remember the, the one like, from sixty nine because yeah. I was months old. But uh, <laughs> if not, you have the greatest memory ever. <laughs> I do. I do. Um, but yeah, again, you know, astronaut, he t- totally went in on the space race because unlike now, when people could give an S about space, yeah. back then, man, we loved it. NASA oh, yeah, was yeah. king, astronauts were yeah. superstars, and yeah. all we wanted to do was explore space and keep on going, and we didn't. I we would have uh, been on Mars today if we kept up at the pace we were I, at. We should have, yes. Uh, I was just at the uh, National uh, Naval Aviation Museum in Pensacola, and uh, it's huge, number one. But number two, they have this whole holographic display where it's all these old astronauts who just push buttons and they answer questions. It was the coolest thing ever. And it, I went to the They moon. were so excited still. Like 50 years later, they were so excited about it. I swung a golf club <laughs> and the ball went. It's that still was, going to be. One of the guys talked about a hammer they didn't need and he was like i threw it and man i threw that thing so far i felt like a superhero <laughs> i felt like steve austin the bionic man <laughs> may 25th skylab 2 is launched on a mission to repair damage to the recently launched skylab space station they had a lot of problems literally nine within 11 days they had to launch something else because it got damaged on the way well, up. it was the first international space station yeah. right yeah Skylab was international. Was Skylab international? Um, or just a- no, it was just the United States. Right. The, the, the reason, part of the reason it failed is because it was only United States. They did the international stuff because they realized just how friggin' expensive it was oh, to yeah. keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. September 20th, Jim Croce, Maury Mulsing. Oh, wow, I can't say that. Mulhysen. Mulhysen. Uh, and four others are killed on takeoff in a plane crash following a concert at Northwestern Louisiana University in Nachitoches. So sad. My parents yeah. are big fans of Jim Croce, and I, I used to listen to him all the time. I literally, until now, did not realize that he died in a plane crash. Really? I did not know that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I knew that. It, and it was devastating to a lot of people. He was, he was a, a huge... Uh, he, a lot of babies were made to Jim Croce. <laughs> he owned easy listening for a while. <laughs> and, you know, big bad Jim. He did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He made a song just about me. <laughs> he did. So that's why, when I was born, he looked at me and he said, Oh, he's going to be big bad Jim. October 20th, the second of three The Six Million Dollar Man TV movies airs. Uh, November 3rd, Mariner program. NASA launches the Mariner 10 toward Mercury on March 29th, 1974. It becomes the first space probe to reach that planet. Again, 1974, man. You, we're talking computers that are punch cards. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, the the fact that they were able to go to other planets and... You know, it, it's insane yeah. the amount of stuff that we did back then. And now, I mean, now look, we're doing great stuff with... Uh, it's, it seems like it's ramping back up. Eh, but it's mostly like telescopes and, sh- and no, stuff. No, they're talking about going back to the moon. Well, they're talking I, about it. Well, they're talking about it because they want to go to Mars. So they're going to have to essentially establish a base on the moon first. Well, also, everybody's going to the moon now. Japan. Uh, well, yeah. China. It needs to be a worldwide thing. It needs to be an international uh, accomplishment. Start... Planting flags on the moon and have the moon wars That's over why moon we've rocks. Got our space force. <laughs> oh, come on, space force. <laughs> November seventeenth, the last of the three six million dollar man TV movies airs. 
they were uh, they all did really well. I uh, yeah. So the Six Million Dollar Man was adapted from a novel called Cyborg by Martin Caden. Okay. Uh, funny enough, I actually got this from the library. Have not read it yet. Uh, we'll read it before the stepdad show. Yeah, well, I will. And I will let you read it. Uh, or did have you bring it, it with you on your trip? Yeah, I did not read it on the uh, trip. Because <laughs> I was going to look for it, but I... I should have left it for you because you would have read it, and I didn't. I had it with me the whole time, and I just, I just didn't. That's all right. You had um, lots to do. I was traveling. Uh, Caden began writing fiction in 1957. In his career, he authored more than 50 fiction and nonfiction books, as well as more than 1,000 magazine articles. Goodness. That is a lot. He also wrote numerous works of military history, especially concerning aviation. Caden was a pilot and researched aviation extensively. Yeah. Uh, he was a very interesting character. In the mid-80s, he hosted a TV show called Face to Face, where he would con- confront far-right political figures with aggressive questions and good research. Nice. Yeah, I don't know if you, do you remember this at all. I do remember Face to Face. I had no idea that it was... Martin Caden? Yeah. I, well, I had no idea that Martin Caden was, was the guy that, the guy that wrote, wrote $6 million cyborg. cyborg. Yeah. I didn't. I, I remember... I think there was a parody of Face to Face. I remember more than Face to Face. Well, there was a lot of shows like that, but most most of them were just screaming guys like right. uh, Morton Downey Jr. Yeah. And, and that... Uh, oh, God, that guy. I can't think of his name. Yeah, yeah. Like the Crossfire guys, or right? it was before that. Well, yeah. Well, Crossfire yeah. was was a political show that yeah, was, yeah. I think, on PBS. Uh, it, it wasn't like a screaming head show. Like, oh no, then I'm thinking of something else. Then you're anyway. probably thinking of there was another show. There was a lot of these like Morton Downey Jr. shows where yeah. it was just guys being jerks, right? right. And uh, there was another one with Rebecca De Mornay's father. Who, whose name escapes me. It's probably something De Mornay. <laughs> but he was kind of the quintessential uh, screaming oh, okay. head, the guy okay. that started it all. Okay. Made, you know, room yeah, for yeah. Morton Downey Jr. and the rest of the the screamers. Well, face-to-face sounds fascinating, but uh, also in the mid-'80s, uh, Martin King claimed he was telekinetic. But he refused to be tested by a well-known parapsychologist debunker, James Randi. James Randi. He's ruined everything for everybody. you want to talk about raining on your parade? (laughs) That's James Randi. Yeah, he did. Uh, Well, good for him, though. I mean, James Randi was a mentalist. I I mean, he he was actually looking for the real stuff. Right, because he was like, look, I do it. Right, I know right. how to do it. It's all BS. It's That's all it. tricks. He's following in the footsteps of Harry Houdini, who it's, like wanted to know about the afterlife. What's really funny is in one of the episodes of the Six Million Dollar Man, he has to <laughs> go undercover as a magician. Oh, nice! And he's got this buddy who is a sleight of hand magician guy, and he's he's the debunker, and he brings he's oh. he's like this cool kind of. Con man, kind of yeah. magician guy that Steve goes to for advice, and he's his friend. He's like, well, you should come with me. And he's like, come with you? Well, I'm not doing that. I'm going to stay here and make money. <laughs> but he ends up coming and, yeah. and debunking because there are these weird – okay. Right, this is just indicative of the show, by the way. So there are these twins who were doing the quotes, 12 – but they look like they were in their 20s because they aged oh, rapidly. Okay. Okay. They had this insane twin mind meld capability. Uh, okay. Okay. And what they could do is they could use their minds to take the writing on this piece of paper, right? Mm-hmm. Make it disappear mm. and reappear. Oh, okay. For them. Wow. 
And the way that he explained it kind of made sense. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but this magician guy was, was the very most utterly useless power ever. <laughs> no, no, man, because they were going to get in classified oh, info. Oh, they were stealing. They were spies. Yeah, yeah. They were stealing they were, stuff. They were doing okay. stuff. Uh-huh. So they weren't spies. They were misunderstood. Like, just a, this is why I love this show. Because just about every quote unquote villain, they're all misunderstood. Right, right. And, and Steve always yeah, finds a way yeah. to kind of. Not kill them, right? And, to justify and to not not murder, <laughs> yeah, making you know? them be good. He yeah. was like such. He never used a gun, but anyway. So <laughs> this character was very James Randi esque. Oh, okay, which is okay. funny considering that. Yeah, how yeah. how it turned out. In 1973, Cyborg was adapted into a 90 minute made for television movie called The Six Million Dollar Man. Uh, the TV movie followed the book closely in the first half with how Austin crashes and loses hope, but veers dramatically in the second half when they send Austin to Saudi Arabia to test his abilities. Yeah. The, be- the, the first part of that movie is so depressing. Oh, my God. It's, it's just him. And I, it, when you're watching it on Peacock, it's not the full TV. They break it into the syndication. Yeah. Like, and, oh, my God, that first episode is so depressing. Well, it's just him in a bed with no arms and uh, no just, legs and a, no arms. I want to die. Pushing people away and just, I mean, I get it. If I, I were it, yeah. in a bed with no arms, leg, and one eye missing, I'd be pretty peeved. Yeah. I wouldn't be too keen on, on moving on. <laughs> The first TV movie was going to be used as a test to see if they could build a series off of the material. This first uh, movie features Martin Balsam, perhaps best known for his role as an investigator in Psycho. Oh, yeah. As Dr. Rudy Wells, Austin's personal doctor. He was great. Who is amazing. I love Martin Balsam so much. Uh, It also features Darren McGavin, perhaps best known as the grumpy father in A Christmas Story, as Steve Austin's boss at the OSO, which they later renamed the OSI. Yeah, which is so funny because that's what they – on Venture Brothers, it's the, the OSI. It's called the yeah. OSI that uh, uh, which I, Sampson works I for. assume the OSO meant the Office of Secret Operations and sure. then OSI is Office of Secret Investigations. Maybe. Uh, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> this TV movie was a huge rating success and led to two more movies before going full on in a series. They were very cautious. Yeah, I don't – it seems weird because it's like – and then, but then uh, – and they had to go and try to change everything up. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Again, they never really knew right. what the series was, but somehow it worked. Also, the fact that they released this in March, the first one in March, and they were waiting to see if it was going to work. And by October, they had a second TV movie ready. Ah, well, stuff took like no. Look, if you look at the production snaps, values, done. Yeah, and I'm not. You know, <laughs> this is everything in the '70s, but everything was practical, man. The the greatest thing about Anything shot in the 70s that's action, especially this, is if the hero enters a room filled with cardboard boxes, Yeah, you know there's going to be a fight. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because they threw everybody in there. Because that's the greatest way of doing stunts is you just (laughs) throw people into the cushy boxes. Right. And and it's just like, oh, there's boxes. It doesn't matter if it's Magnum. Doesn't matter if it's right, Rockford. Right. Doesn't matter what show it is. The A Team. You see them boxes. <laughs> it's there's it's gonna be a brawl. Time for a fight. So the second TV movie, movie was released in October of '73, and the third in November. Uh, so apparently they just made those back to back. I'm assuming. Probably. Uh, despite Martin Caden writing four novels in his Cyborg book series, none of the sequels were adapted for the two other TV movies or the series. Huh. Super weird. These two TV movies were produced by Glenn A. Larson, who produced a ton of TV movies and shows in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, we know his daughter. 
Uh, we do. Yeah, we do. Uh, Daniel, she's very nice. He actually wrote the theme song for these two movies, being sung by Dusty Springfield. Nice. Yeah. These two movies were taken in a more of a James Bond international intrigue style. Well, that's kind of the DNA of the $6 million man, is whatever's going on and popular at the time. They kind of... Yeah, yeah. Ham-fisted the show into that. very Bond-like. Uh, he didn't like it, though. No, no. In the second, he travels to Egypt, almost dies, and eventually ends up in the Bahamas, uh, which he... The best is he almost dies because they're throwing depth charges at him yeah. while he's underwater. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's a dangerous business. It's such a long sequence. It just goes on for so long. Uh, the third movie involves Paris and Peking. They also made Steve Austin a colonel in the U.S. Air Force, like in the first book. In the first TV movie, he was just a civilian pilot. Uh, Lee Major said of Austin, He hates the whole idea of spying. He finds it repugnant, disgrading. If he's uh, James Bond, he's the most reluctant one we've ever had. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, honestly, I agree with him. Yeah. Like, especially with the series and how the series became. But, like, he doesn't need to be James Bond. Steve is a victim of circumstance. Yeah. Steve is a test pilot and an astronaut who was thrust into the OSI because of his abilities. He yeah, didn't want to yeah. be a spy. No. And his morality doesn't really fit into that. And that's one of the right. great tropes of the series as right. he and Oscar are always button heads because Oscar is a scumbag. Uh, so the series would end up doing away with the spy intrigue and make Steve Austin much more down to earth, which obviously is much more relatable to a TV audience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just, he's just this guy who's forced to do stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's just one episode, the Christmas episode, okay? So Steve comes in to Oscar. He's got a big old gift. Mm-hmm. He's like, hey, Oscar, we're going for our annual... Christmas lunch. And, uh, sorry, pal. You're going to have to go on assignment. Wait, it's Christmas Eve. I'm, I'm heading to Ojai. <laughs> Not this time, pal. You're going to go. This guy's. So, basically, my favorite Martian, Ray Walston, mm-hmm. he, he has this company where he's doing some test for NASA or OSI. Mm-hmm. And it keeps going wrong because he's, uh, basically Scrooge. So, what happens is Steve goes. The funniest thing, too, is he's like, he's walking out with the present, and Oscar's like, hey, is that present for me? When Steve comes back, he's like, yeah, I got you something for Christmas. And he opens it up, it's a lamp, and then Steve takes the lamp and bends it. Just like, F you. (laughs) (laughs) For ruining Christmas. And then at the end of the episode, he comes back and bends it. Uh, Of course he does. But, so he goes to this company or whatever, and uh, Dick Sargent or Dick York, whoever was the second bewitched uh, Darren. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he is like the uh, Cratchit. And uh, so they're working at this plant and they're testing some sort of, you know, pressurized whatevs. But Ray Walston is using the lowest, 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 most bare minimum that he can because he's a money grubbing jerk. Sure. Making sure. everybody work on Christmas sure. Eve. And his nephew, who is the, the guy from. Uh, 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 bewitched, right? Had to borrow money from him, like eight grand, because his wife was dying. So now he has to like he's demoted him from like a scientist to his driver and just right. humiliates him and makes him work all the time. So not a happy place to be for Christmas, you know. The kids they're not gonna they don't have a tree or anything. So right. Steve jumps up, pops off the top of the tree, give him the tree, and so <laughs> what happens is somehow Ray Walston gets hurt or has a heart attack or something like has an incident yeah and he's drugged up 
And they're like, look, he's going to be out of it for a few hours, maybe hallucinating, blah, blah, blah. So Steve takes him out of the house. It basically does a, a Christmas carol. Right, right. Takes him all over, shows him these places. And then the best part is, after he's all done, the guy wakes up. He's like, ah, that's nonsense. <laughs> Doesn't nice. believe any of it. And then something happens, and he does believe it, and he gets all the presents for sure. the kids, and it's all a good thing. But it's just so weird that they made this whole Christmas carol. This is why I love this show. Right, It's because right. it makes no sense. But yeah. somehow it made sense, and it worked. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. It was how. Yeah. Yeah. The Oscar Goldman's a grouch. That second movie introduces Oscar Goldman. Steve is also a bit more of a dick in this TV movie than the first and during the series. I don't know if you remember this, but in the second, he purposely rigs a nuclear bomb to be unwittingly detonated by his pursuer in an inhabited part of Paradise K. Oh, that's not too good. No! <laughs> the bomb is detonated as he looks on for what's portrayed to be a safe distance. It's literally like watching the sunset and the bomb goes off. It was like, okay, that's not the Steve Austin we want. No. No. It's, it's definitely against his character from then on. I mean, because he's like the, he's the perfect role model for kids. Yeah, yeah. A guy that does the right thing, not always does the right thing. Yeah. But mostly. And when it counts... And, you know, well, he has to do the gray area sometimes, but it's to do the right thing. Yeah. yeah. Unless it's his ego. A lot of times <laughs> he'll cheat for his ego. When the weekly series began, the song by Glenn A. Larson was replaced by an instrumental theme by Oliver Nelson. So good. Nelson was an American jazz saxophonist, clarinetist, arranger, composer, and band leader. His 1961 Impulse album, The Blues and the Abstract Truth, is regarded as one of the most significant recordings of its era. I think I have that album. I bet you do. I bet it's up on the shelf somewhere. Uh, The first regular episode, Population Zero, which aired on January 18th of 1974, literally like six weeks after the third TV movie aired. Things moved fast back then. (laughs) It It didn't take two years to make a show back then, man. Uh, It introduced a new element to the opening sequence, a voiceover by Oscar Goldman stating the rationale behind creating a bionic man. A narrator, series producer Harvey Bennett, identifies the protagonist, Steve Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. Richard Anderson, in character as Oscar Goldman, then intones off-camera, Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man. Better than he was before. Better. Stronger. Faster. (laughs) During the first season, beginning with Population Zero, Anderson, as Goldman intoned, intoned more simply, We can rebuild him. We have the technology. We can make him better than he was. Better. Stronger. Faster. (laughs) (laughs) During the operation, when he is having his bionics fitted, a list of items and numbers displayed, and his lists his powers plant as atomic. Yeah, he's he's an atomic-powered bionic man. Big old bomb walking around. So the cast, uh, Steve Austin, uh, played by Lee Majors, obviously is the lead character. Lee Majors. Uh, Lee Majors was fascinating. He was born Harvey Lee Yeary in Wyandotte. Wyandot, Wyandot, Mich- Michigan, a suburb of Detroit. Ooh, that is definitely a serial killer's name. Harvey Lee Yeary. Harvey yeah. Lee Yeary. Uh, only and a 
Torsos of eight women in his hot tub. The only thing more serial killer killery than that is his father's name, Carl Geary. Okay. That's pretty good. <laughs> but his mom, Alice, they were both killed in separate accidents. Oh, my God. His father died in a work accident five months prior to his birth. Oh, my God. So he never knew his dad. And his mother was killed in a car accident when he was almost 17 months old. Good Lord. Yeah. Guy was orphaned. By the time he was a year and a half, he was that, orphaned. Oh, my God. At the age of two, Majors was adopted by his aunt and uncle, Harvey and Mildred Deary, and he moved with him to Middlesbrough, Kentucky. He totally could have been a serial killer with all that. Uh, Tragedy? Yeah. yeah. He participated in track and football at Mer- Middlesbrough High School. He graduated in 1957 and earned a scholarship to Indiana University, where he again competed in sports. Oh, yeah. He totally looks like an athlete. Oh, he's a total athlete. Yeah. Uh, Majors transferred to Eastern Kentucky University in Richmond, Kentucky in 1959. He is really the all-American dude. He is. He is. He played in his first football game the following year, but suffered a severe back injury, which left him paralyzed for two weeks and ruined his college athletic career. Dude's been through it. The middle man just crank, crank, crank. It's bad. Just like uh, so many actors or athletes turn actors. Just shows you how easy yeah. this job is. By the way. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Following his injury, he turned his attention to acting and performed in plays at the Pioneer Playhouse in Danville, how, Kentucky. How many times have you said that sentence, by the A way, lot. over the A last lot. three years? After failed in sports, he turned his attention to acting. <laughs> he was extremely successful. Uh, Majors graduated from Eastern Kentucky in 1962 with a degree in history and physical education. He actually planned to be a football coach. He'd have been a good one. He would have been a great one. After college, he received an offer to try out for the St. Louis Cardinals football team. Instead, he moved to Los Angeles and found work at the Los Angeles Park and Recreation Department as the recreation director for North Hollywood Park. Hey, that's where I used to live. You lived right across the street. I did. Yeah. Well, it's now Not Amelia Earhart Park. Yeah. Merely Amelia No, Earhart. the Amelia Earhart Park is the one north. The North Hollywood Park is the one right across from you. Oh, so they're both They're actually not separate parks. Oh, yeah. They're yeah. very close. Yeah. In Los Angeles, Majors met many actors and industry professionals, including Dick Clayton, who had been James Dean's agent, and Clayton suggested he attend his acting school. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Hey, you should attend my acting school, buddy. You have a good look. Yeah. It's you... only... A... Yeah, but back then it was probably five bucks a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After one year of acting school, Clayton felt that Majors was ready to start his career. You're ready, buddy. <laughs> So weird. Well, that's actually, weird. but that's, you know, most of these acting, well, at least today or in my experience, most of these acting teachers, I'm doing the quotes, yeah. that have these, Coaches. you know, well, that, that have these kind of group classes every yeah. week. Yeah. Kind of turn into cults and they come, become de facto managers that you're paying for. And, well, and the, but they never, they're, they're just like, keep coming and paying me. You're never ready. Yeah. I mean, at least That's what I'm guy, saying. Is this guy's guy is smart enough to be like, look, I'm an agent. I can make money off of yeah. you. <laughs> like, go work. He, he, he has the pipeline, baby. Exactly. At this time, he picked up the stage name Lee Majors as a tribute to childhood hero Johnny Majors, who was a player and future coach for the University of Tennessee. Johnny Majors. Johnny Majors. Majors also studied at Estelle Harmon's acting school at MGM. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Majors got his big break when he was chosen out of over 400 young actors, including Burt Reynolds, for the co-starring role of Heath Barkley in a new ABC four-star Western series, The Big Valley, which starred Barbara Stanwyck. Barbara Stanwyck, yep. And uh, uh, his brother on that show, Pernell Roberts, I think his name is? That sounds right. Uh, he was uh, the older... Uh, brother of the, yeah. uh, of the, of the, whatever their name is. What's their name? <laughs> the uh, uh, Barclays. The Barclays. Yeah. He, and he ended up coming on the Bionic Man 
Oh and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they had a little bit of a. Do I know you from somewhere? Yeah, of course. That little fun thing. Kind of have that little aside, that fourth wall break for the audience. But what's funny is because of the Bionic Man, I went back and as a kid, and because they played the Big Valley reruns all the time. Yeah, yeah. I would watch it because of Lee Majors. Lee Majors. One of Heath's frequently used expressions during the series was, "Boy, howdy." That was real good. Big Valley was an immediate hit and ran for 112 episodes over four seasons from 65 to 69. Yeah, it was just basically a Bonanza clone. And instead of having Pa, they had Ma. Right. And, you know, the brothers. It was good. It was a good knockoff. But but, uh, I just loved those Western shows back then because they were just They were huge at that time. Huge. The Rifleman was great. Um, Have Gun, Will Travel. Well, I don't know that if was, that was, that was a, in the fifties. That was actually much earlier. Was that a western? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't know that one. I didn't watch like the old old stuff. Yeah. But but I would watch Bonanza and I would watch The Big Valley, and Gunsmoke, of course. Oh yeah, Gunsmoke. With, uh, Gunsmoke. with a young Clint Eastwood. Oh, was rowdy. <laughs> During the series, Majors co-starred in the nineteen sixty-eight Charlton Heston film Will Penny for which he received an introducing credit and landed the lead role in The Ballad of Andy Crocker, a made-for-television television film which was first broadcast by ABC. Will Penny's really good. Uh, oh, yeah? I've, I've not seen it. Uh, the film was one of the first films to deal with... Oh, sorry, The Ballad of Andy Crocker was one of the first films to deal with the subject matter of Vietnam veterans coming home. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, early on, early on. Uh, that same year, he was offered the chance to star in Midnight Cowboy, but The Big Valley was renewed for another season, and he was forced to decline the role, which later went to John Voight. Wow, what a different career he would have had. What a different movie that would have been. I, I mean, he would have been fantastic in it. Yeah. But, yeah, very different career. Yeah, because uh, it would have made him a movie star, and, and unfortunately, he never hit it in the movies. He was a no. definite TV star, and a big, one of the biggest at yeah, the time. Yeah, But... It was much more difficult back then to transition from yeah from TV to film, and then if you went from film to TV, then that was considered they, a failure. Oh yeah, they thought you were you were losing your mojo. Now it's different. Now it doesn't matter. Now TV's the good stuff, and film's yeah. crap. <laughs> when the Big Valley was canceled in 1969, he signed a long-term contract with Universal Studios. Majors was called a blonde Elvis Presley because of his resemblance to Elvis during this period of his career. We always had that eyebrow. Eyebrow sticking up. <laughs> oh, yeah, always that eyebrow, yeah. yeah. After The Six Million Dollar Man in 1981, Majors returned in another long-running television series. Oh, we're doing this one too, baby. I know, I know. Because I loved it. Uh, producer Glenn A. Larson asked him to star in the pilot of The Fall Guy. Majors played Colt Seavers, a Hollywood stuntman who moonlights as a bounty hunter. God, Colt Seavers. It's so 80s. <laughs> it's it's so, so, 80s. so 80s. And he had a perm. He, he kept the perm uh, from season five. Uh, I think it was a hairpiece by then. I'm not positive. Probably. Majors was also a producer and a director on the show and even sang its theme song, The Self-Effacing Unknown Stuntman. I don't mean to kiss and tell, but I've been seen with Farrah. I'm the unknown stuntman who made Eastwood such a star. <laughs> what is that? Okay, now granted, I will say I've never seen one second of The Fall Guy, so maybe it'll make more sense. Oh, you're missing out, man. Well, I, look, we're going to cover it eventually. Heather Thomas? Oh. One of the blondes of the 80s that everybody had a poster of up, up I on was, there. I was like three when this came yeah, out. You missed out. Yeah. So The Fall Guy ran for five seasons t- until it was canceled in 1986. Great thing about The Fall Guy, too, is it would always kind of start out with a stunt, and it would have real actors from real shows. Oh, yeah. So he would be yeah. on, like, 
heart to heart. Right. And he would right. be doing a stunt, a stunt for Robert yeah. Wagner. And Robert right. Wagner would be like, hey, Colt, thanks for coming in and doing it. That's <laughs> yes, okay. I nice. I'm always here for you, buddy. And then he would do the stunt, and then somehow, like, the stunt would come back later. Right. And, you know, he would have to use that to foil his bounty when he was bounty hunting. Right. Oh, and they're doing a, 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 a remake of that. Yeah. That's coming out, I think, this year with um, uh, Ryan Gosling. Oh yeah, it is. Yeah. I thought it was. I was, nope. was going to say Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's coming out this year. Ryan Gosling. Yeah, and he's yeah he's, he's in it. He's starring as Colt yeah. Seavers. He's playing. Him. Yeah, yeah. God, I love him. I love that he's. Still I'm excited. Acting. I'm excited. We'll uh, we'll definitely have to cover it around the time when the uh, the movie comes out. Yes. Uh, he does continue to work, obviously, at age 84, doing a lot of voiceover work and occasionally guest appearances on Guy Fieri shows, of like all going, things. I like going to Flavortown. <laughs> Apparently he does. It's not too spicy. I'm 84. He did a lot of voiceover work for Grand Theft Auto Vice City, and he played, didn't he play, that was, um, I just sent you that meme this morning. It was uh, in the Evil Dead show. He played uh, Bruce Campbell's dad. Yes. Well, he also was in The Brothers Solomon. The, oh, yeah. That movie. He played the father of... Will Forte. Uh, yes. And then there yeah. was somebody else yeah. that was the other brother. I mean, he's still he's still working. Like, he's obviously still out and about and doing stuff. But... He was great in that. I think he yeah. was in a coma for most of that, though. He <laughs> <laughs> got it out of it. But it was still, like, he's sharp as a tack, man, and he looks he's great. great. Yeah. I mean, it's just... He's 84. He looks great. But he was a really good first hero of, for me. Yeah. Because it really taught you empathy and... You know, it, it didn't matter if the person was a man or a woman or black or white or Native yeah. American. He was always on the side of what was right. Right. And not in a way that was goopy and cloying and sentimental. Yeah. 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 It, it was just done in a perfect way. And I think most of that has to do with his acting and the way he portrayed yeah. the character. Yeah. Because he was very good at playing a good guy without being a Boy Scout kind of. You know what I mean? Like yeah. not yeah. being a goody-goody. But still always doing the right thing. Right, right. And that, that's why he didn't like the James Bond stuff, because it went too far the other direction. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, Steve Austin wouldn't do this. It's just more interesting for him to be thrust into a, a situation where he doesn't really know what's going on, and he's there to help. Right. You right. know, it was the the beginning. I mean, not the beginning, because I think since the beginning of TV, we've always had the lone hero wandering yeah, the, yeah. the planes trying to help people going from town to town, place to place. Have have gun will travel. Yeah, exactly. So, but this was kind of that, and but it, you know, again, it was he, he was always assigned to something, or yeah, he, would, he, d- he didn't always want to do the stuff, but he when he was was there, he was like, well, I'm going to do what's right, and I'm going to do it. The great thing too is like, whenever it was ended, you know, he, he saved the town or whatever, and Oscar would be like, all right, pal, come on, let's go back to work. Oh no, Oscar, I'm going to stay here for a couple of weeks. Yeah, just relax. Just, and he would just stay, just hang out, and hang out. That's so great. He'd sit on it. the he great ending. In one of these, just sitting on stairs with this woman, gossiping about the people in town because he <laughs> knows them all now. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It was just those fun little touches. Yeah. Uh, Oscar Goldman was played by Richard Anders- Anderson, director of the OSI. Not Richard Dean Anderson. No, no, different. Uh, Anderson began his career in 1950 as an MGM contract player, appearing in movies such as Forbidden Planet in 1956 as Chief Engineer Quinn. Oh, yeah. Paths of Glory in, in 1957, written and directed by Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, he was great in that. And that's If you haven't seen that movie. Oh, so good, so good. Uh, and The Long Hot Summer in 1958, starring Paul Newman. Oh, yeah. He was a solid contract player, a solid yeah. character actor. 
Uh, in the 1960s, Anderson made appearances in 23 episodes of Perry Mason during the series' final season as Police Lieutenant Steve Drum, replacing the character of Lieutenant Tragg, played by Ray Collins, who died in 1956 or 1965. Sorry. Yeah, oh, man, the worst part of being homesick was the hour that Perry Mason <laughs> Perry was Mason. on. It was so anathema to anything kids liked. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, watching it older, and, and I loved the remake. I think it's yeah. a crime yeah. that they canceled, canceled it. it. Yeah. But <laughs> who says love? Who says he? Yes. I will tell you this. The episodes that Oscar Goldman was on, I would watch happily because, oh yeah, you know, it was, was my great. $6 million yeah. man connection. He was a good foil. He was a good foil. He's guilty, your honor. <laughs> Every single episode. It didn't matter what happened in the courtroom. It didn't happen what happened in the trial or in the investigations. At the very end, somebody would stand up and be like, well, I did it, and I'm glad that I did it. Or Perry Mason would turn, it's not him, Your Honor. It's that man in the back of the courtroom conveniently watching me. <laughs> I mean, might as well just do Scooby-Doo, pull the mask off exactly. and, and get mad that the kids ruined everything. I preferred Ironside. Yeah, yeah. So Richard Anderson also appeared on many TV shows, including... The Untouchables, Wagon Train, The Rifleman, Daniel Boone, Thriller, The Eleventh Hour, Ready Go, Combat, Twelve O'Clock High, I Spy, The Man from Uncle, The Fugitive, The Wild Wild West, Bonanza, The Green Hornet, The Invaders, and The Big Valley. All great shows. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he appeared in the television movie The Night Strangler as the villain, Dr. Richard Malcolm, starring Darren McGavin, the sequel to The Night Stalker, the precursor to Kolchak, the TV series, which we've also done an episode on. You should listen to that. Ooh, I need to watch that movie. It is so good. It is so good. The Night Strangler is so good. What's it on? It's, uh, it it's YouTube. You gotta find it on YouTube. Nah. But it's the same guy who did the Night Stalker one, so it's crisp and it looks amazing. Oh, okay. But it is, he's like essentially like this, uh, vampire? But he's like 150 years old, and like he's. But I did not realize it was the same guy. Was he like, I'm gonna suck your blood, pal? He, <laughs> it was weird. He drank like concoctions. Like he would. It was yeah. weird. Anyway, it was really good. It was really good. Uh, in the 1980s, he stayed busy working on Charlie's Angels, Matt Houston, Knight Rider, Remington Steel, Cover Up, The A Team, The Fall Guy, Simon and Simon, and Murder She Wrote. Uh, unfortunately, Anderson died in, on August 31st, 2017, from natural causes in Beverly Hills at the age of 91. Uh, that's a good run. He, did, he went a long time. Yeah. I mean, watching him in this, that means that he was probably in his 40s? Yeah. Maybe late 30s, 40s? No. He just seems, well, 91 in 2017. Hmm. So he would have been born in, no, yeah, he would have been... 40s. He went in his 40s. Yeah. He just seems older. I don't know. It's just everybody did. Yeah. The, we we I know. all looked older. You look at high school pictures from the 60s. It's I everybody know. looks I like know. they're 45 years old. And <laughs> people say that about the 80s now, too, which is weird, I, but I guess it's true. I just saw a high school photo of Harrison Ford his senior year, and he looks older than he does now. <laughs> well, I think that's impossible. <laughs> Rudy Wells, Austin's physician and primary overseer of the medical aspects of bionic t- technology was actually played by three different people. Uh, Wells was played by Martin Balsam in the first TV movie. Yes. Alan Oppenheimer played Wells in the second and third TV movies, and in seasons one to three, the character wasn't a regular. He only appeared in one episode in season one, seven episodes in season two, and one episode in season three. 
Strangely enough, the one episode in season three where he played Dr. Rudy Wells was in episode nine after the next guy had already appeared as Dr. Rudy Wells in the yes. first two episodes of the season. Martin E. Brooks? <laughs> yes, Martin E. Brooks. Oh, they're all good, though. so weird. Yeah. I just don't know. I mean, I just don't know if they filmed it differently or if maybe just Martin E. Brooks wasn't available. And Well, what happened was he wasn't that, that – Dr. Rudy Wells wasn't a big part of the no, series at the no. beginning. But then as the series went along, he yeah. became oh, no, a he was a huge part of it. Like, yeah. He would have ended up going – in season five – he was always right. going he was, out yes. with as, as soon Steve. as they got Marnie Brooks in, he became a regular character. Yeah. yeah. In, in the Sharks two-parter, he yeah. was in the uh, in the submersible oh, thing, yeah. and, and he was going to die, and he had to save him. Oh. Very. And they had, uh, ooh, <laughs> and then uh, Pamela Hensley from Buck Rogers in the 25th oh, Century, yeah. Yeah. Uh, who was on the show quite a bit, actually. No, yeah. different characters. Um, she could control <laughs> shark. Oh. She had a shark that she had a little... Oh, she had a remote control shark? And she could somehow control this shark. This giant man-eater! It was not... They don't... Look, that was one of my favorite things about the show, is, like, Population Zero, the first episode of the series, just randomly, the guy has, like, a sonic ray that makes people essentially die. (laughs) But then they're not dead. When he turns it off, they just come back. Well, it's... So, there's a submarine (laughs) down... And these guys are stealing the submarine and stealing all the missiles and stuff, and they yeah. need to drop down a nuke to blow it up so they can't get the yeah. stuff. But Steve's down there, and the doctor's t- trapped in the <laughs> submersible thing. They were they were way too willy-nilly with nukes. In the book, the first Bigfoot episode, when, when they were like, all these earthquakes are happening. And he's like, the, the earthquake expert's like, we should put a nuke over yeah. this one and just blow it up, and then it'll be fine. And it's like, what? Steve, you need to get five feet away from there. We're going to detonate a nuke. It's, it's like, what? That just seems like a bad idea. This really seems odd. <laughs> what about the, the, the wildlife? So Alan Oppenheimer, who played Wells for the second half, second part of the, of the series, or for middle part of the series, I right. should say, he's best known for his voice work. He was a staple on Saturday morning cartoons, appearing in He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, She-Ra, Ghostbusters, The Smurfs, Frady Cat, Pound Puppies, Battle of the Planets, the Transformers, and Thundar the Barbarian. Thunder the Barbarian! He was also the narrator for The NeverEnding Story in 1984. Alan Oppenheimer is awesome. I don't know if he's related to Oppenheimer, which would be kind of funny since they do a lot of nuke stuff on the... <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know if he is or not. He's his son. Uh, okay. Yeah, let's, we're sure. just going to say it. it. We're going to go with it. Alan Oppenheimer was... Uh, Look, the timing works. It does. It does. <laughs> He was his dad was really pissed that he didn't go into the family business. <laughs> yeah, but your show you got to add in nukes, add in uh, as many nukes as you can. I'll let you. I'll, I'll forgive you if there's a lot of sloppy nuke <laughs> storylines. <laughs> so at the age of ninety three, Oppenheimer can be heard in the Chippendale Rescue Rangers feature film, which was released in twenty twenty two, and in the two new Masters of the Universe shows on Netflix. He is still alive and he is still doing voiceover. I love it. I love it. It was that the. Uh, Chippendale with um, the, the one that was one was animated, one was CG. Right and with then, Andy Samberg. Yeah, yeah. I really, I, I surprisingly really liked the, that Chippendale. Movie. It was fun. It was really well, funny. it was because of the two leads. Martiny Brooks, when he came on, he played Doctor Rudy Wells in season three to five. Uh, Brooks appeared in the first two episodes of season three, and then almost all of season four and five, making appearances in forty-five episodes. Yeah, they really threw old Doctor Rudy Wells in uh, every in the. Situation. He would also play the same character in 45 episodes of The Bionic Woman, as well as the three TV movies that eventually followed. Right. Uh, which we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, Brooks had a lot of success in TV starting in 1951 with Sure as Fate, an anthology mystery drama. 
and he made guest appearances in almost 60 TV shows between 51 and 72 until he won a recurring role on Macmillan and Wife. Yeah, as the wife. Strangely <laughs> enough. He's, he's got a very broad range. Uh, he does. He does yeah, played abroad. There's your dad joke. Wah. He only appeared in five feature films during his career. Uh, this blows my mind. Johnny Gunman in 1957, a, a drama. Of course. Uh, With a name like Johnny Gunman. <laughs> Colossus, the Forbin Project in 1970 about an AI computer that decides to end warfare worldwide. Nice. Kind of a precursor to uh, war games. Right. The Man in 1972 starring James Earl Jones and written by Rod Serling. Imagine, if you will, a man, the man, the man. Uh, and then he was in uh, two movies later. After 72, he was in no feature films for like 22 years. Uh, then he was in T-Force in 1984, a film set in the near future about a group of law enforcement cyborgs called Cybernauts, which after being threatened with their shutdown, rebel against their superiors and the authorities. Of course. Very awful B-movie. Uh, and then Street Gun in 1996, a terrible-looking mob movie appearing as, quote-unquote, man thrown off roof. Oh. That was the last role Brooks would play, retiring from acting shortly thereafter. I'm done with this man on roof. Uh, <laughs> I used to be on the $6 million man, damn it. I was Dr. Rudy Wells. Uh, he died on December 7th, 2015 of natural causes at his home in Studio City one week after his 90th birthday. Good Lord, this show has such longevity. Yes, God. the actor, all the actors. This is the thing. You do, you do TV, you live a long time. <laughs> well, Lee Major's still alive. Yeah. Uh, uh, all these other guys living in their 90s. Lindsay Wagner's still alive. Alan Oppenheimer's still around. Yeah, man. Uh, Jamie Summers, speaking of Lindsay Wagner, uh, she, she appeared in nine episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, starting with her two-episode arc, introducing her as the bionic woman. Yeah. Oh, don't go skydiving with Steve Austin. <laughs> oh God, that episode, that was terrifying. She would get her own show, The Bionic Woman, in 1976 during season four of The Six Million Dollar Man. Uh, she would make a couple more appearances on The Six Million Dollar Man, including the amazing Bigfoot episodes, which The Return of Bigfoot Part 1 was on The Six Million Dollar Man, and The Return of Bigfoot Part 2 was on The Bionic Woman. They also did a lot of weird <laughs> things where like, there was this one episode where uh, a gymnast, a Russian gymnast, uh, I think played by Kathy Rigby, I'm not sure. She was a, a very yeah. popular gymnast at the time. Uh, and <laughs> so at the beginning of the episode... Oscar and Jamie and and Steve are all talking, and and Oscar's like, Steve, you're gonna have to babysit the Russian uh, gymnast, and blah blah blah. And Jamie's like, Well, what am I supposed to do? I just go back. To, uh, I'm just gonna go back to Ohio to my kids. Call me if you have a hot male gymnast that you need looked after. He he he. And that was it. She was yeah. there for like six yeah. seconds. Well, that was even the, the, the Bigfoot episode. Like, she was in the beginning and then wasn't in the rest of the episode. Yeah, it was just a phone call. Should I come help? No. And then, and then, and then they, she had her own, like, adventure with Bigfoot or yeah. something. I, I haven't actually seen the – well, no, I did see part two. She wasn't really in that either. No. I don't – anyway. It was weird. The whole thing was weird. Uh, she actually started as a model in Los Angeles before signing a contract with Universal Studios. Her primetime net network television debut was in the series Adam 12. One Adam 12, one Adam 12. And she went on to appear in a dozen other Universal shows, including... Owen Marshall, counselor at law, the FBI, Sarge, and Night Gallery. Between 71 and 75, she appeared in five episodes of, Un of Universal's Marcus Welby, MD, and two episodes of The Rockford Files. Ah, she was great on that. Yeah. 
Over her career, Wagner has appeared in over 50 TV movies and almost 20 feature films. If I remember correctly, I think there might have been a little romance action between Probably. the two of them. And that was... <laughs> he was like 50 and she was 20. I... She Back was, then, it was fine, I guess. She was so young. I, I she was so pretty. I was so young. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, even I and, and not and and obviously the stuff between you know Steve Austin and Jamie Summers, but she still was pretty young, much younger than him. Four years because oh as, really yeah because she was a freshman. And the whole joke was yeah, but, that he, but, she was too young for him because he was a senior and she was a freshman. On the show, school. but I'm talking about in real life. Yes, but they didn't okay. play it. Right, right. You know, they played it as just... You just had to believe the fact that he was just super young? Well, he was, I mean, he was in his 30s when he started this. He, yeah. he just has that older look. Yeah, you know? yeah. But, yeah. but according to shore, show lore... Yes, yes. He's only... Three or four, four years, years older. older. Yeah, yeah, because they were. Uh, yes, they grew I mean, up they, together. They grew up together, essentially. Yeah, they were best friends. They yeah. never hooked. And he had to. He had to get her. He had to get her. He loved her. He she did. loved him. He did. But even then, just showing how good of a guy he was when she doesn't remember who he is after her horrible accident. Okay. So we have to explain <laughs> this. So when Jamie, so Jamie, the two-parter. Uh, so Steve goes back to Ohio. Buys a house. Yeah. Starts fixing it up. Reconnects with Jamie. His parents? I think his parents are there? Is that his parents? His his mom and his stepdad. Stepdad, okay. Who he calls dad. Dad. He's got a very close relationship with his stepdad. I think that's another reason why I liked him, because he had a stepdad. Um, But uh, he had a much better stepdad than I did. But he, uh, so he fixes up this house, and he reconnects with Jamie, and they're (laughs) falling in love. But she's seeing somebody. (laughs) Oh, for about two seconds. (laughs) And then she tells... He, when he goes and stalkerly spies oh on her while God. she's on her date, yeah, yeah you're on a date. What? That's when I told him goodbye. So she dumps this poor son of a bitch she's yeah. dating for a while. Yeah. And then so they get together. They start dating. They get engaged. And everybody's happy. And the wedding's about to come. And, and everybody's super happy because Jamie and Steve, everybody thought they were going to get together all the time. And Jamie and Steve and his mom is just over the moon. So to celebrate, they go uh, skydiving. Jamie's chute doesn't open. She plummets to the earth and smashes oh. into the ground. Oh, my God. It's horrifying. Destroying her legs and conveniently and, an arm. An arm. And, and an ear. ear. An ear. Not her eye. Somehow her punctures an eardrum or something while she's falling. So Steve basically begs Oscar to bionicize her. Yeah. And, yeah. and Oscar's like, look, pal, if we do this, she's going to work for it. I mean, he's not... Doing it because he's oh, no. best friend. He's, he's like, like yeah, you already owe us, and now you're going to owe us even more. And she's going to owe us yeah, too. Yeah. So it's the ain't no free lunches right, in the OSI, right. baby. So they bionicize her, and she's in a coma, and uh, she dies. She rejects yeah. the bionic. She literally dies, and she dies. And end of episode. <laughs> Steve's devastated, devastated, devastated. So. <laughs> and then there was like five, six episodes where she's just dead. <laughs> yes. She's just dead. So, so then there's another episode. The return her, of the, the return Bionic of the Woman. Bionic Woman. And we find out that she's been in a coma. And Steve loses his ass. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Never loses seen him matter on the show. I have never seen a man roll a wheelchair faster <laughs> than he did going to go see Jamie. What's really funny, though, is he has one bionic arm. He would just be going in it circles. Was- <laughs> 
Same thing when he's paddling a canoe. He'd be I going know. in circles because one arm is... But it's just the, the best was that it just the whole time... <laughs> it, it went on for like five minutes. <laughs> just kept going, kept going. So so he's like, Oscar, you tell me where she... I mean, he's like, are you up three oh, seconds? Was, with he, I've never with seen him more mad. Punch you in the face. So mad. And he's just... Oh. And so finally he finds her and... She doesn't know who he is. She doesn't have memory. She has what everybody in the 70s had at one time or another on TV, amnesia. Ooh. Uh, and this wasn't the kind of amnesia that you could cure with a coconut no. drop on the head. <laughs> no. Like on Gilligan. Although they should have tried that. They should have. But that was, how many coconuts dropped on her head to get the amnesia? None. Oh, this is a non-coconut amnesia? <laughs> oh, irregular. <laughs> so she doesn't know who he is. And I guess it's somehow dangerous to let her know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, they didn't, they kind of glossed over a lot and of so that. so, the doctor who's helping her, who's a friend of Steve's, by the way, yeah, starts romancing her, and right in front of him, and smooching yeah. and stuff, and, and he's like, sorry, Steve, but, you know, <laughs> she's, she's making her choice. She's, you know, it's, I don't really want her, it's just helping her get better. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, sure thing, buddy, yeah. Okay. Best bedside manner yeah. ever. Gross. <laughs> So, but then Steve's just like, hey, whatever makes her happy. You know? He he decides that he needs to let her be her, and that if she doesn't want him, then then he's just, that's it. And he tries. He takes her, which is really stupid. He takes her back to Ojai yeah, without telling anybody or telling her why. Ruins almost all of it, yeah. Yeah, and then people are like, is that Jamie Summers? Oh, yeah, by the way, she was a very famous like tennis player. Yes. <laughs> so people knew who she was. There are two famous people that came out of Ojai. Astronaut? Steve, Steve Austin. Austin and tennis pro Jamie Summers. <laughs> but so, somehow no one's going to recognize her. Let's go to be incognito in the place where the, where the most famous in the world. She barely steps on a test court and immediately guys like, oh, my God, it's Jamie Summers. Right. So she kind of every time she starts to remember something, it hurts her really bad. Yeah. So the Pain. more she learns about Steve, like basically her love will kill her. <laughs> so Steve it's true. It's has true. to let go. And he does. And he does in a way that isn't, he's just like, whatever's best for her. You know? He's, he's such a, not a martyr, but he, he does, he puts himself last, but not in a way right. that's, right. I'm a sad sack or whatever. He just does the right thing because it's the right reason. And so for the entire five seasons and the three seasons of her show or whatever, this, Two whole, seasons. Yeah. this whole thing's going on. Well, it, it was so it was it was the beginning of season four, right? Where because essentially those the return of the Bionic Woman on the Six Million Dollar Man was the backdoor pilot for her show, sure. And and the the best though, the absolute best was that after those two episodes, she goes off to do her own show. Yep. She's she makes appearances once in a while, sure. You know the Bigfoot and, he did and all too. that stuff, and yeah, they would cross over a little bit. But the way that he seems like he got over her was that the very next episode in season four, he grew a mustache. Yeah. This is my gr- grieving mistake. But they and they literally mention it, and he was kind of like gives like a weird like a weird look of like, <laughs> yep, hey, it's like a I, yeah, I'm not to be Burt Reynolds. Now I'm gonna say, and I don't want to spoil anything, but literally that plot line from the beginning of season four is not resolved. No, until the third the final TV movie, TV movie in 1994, the very end of the Bionic. The, 20 saga. years later, more, almost 20 years Poor later. son of a bitch. And it's not like, like he hooks up, kind of, but it's very vague. So it's not like Magnum 
who was obsessed with his dead wife for the entire show. Right, right. He still dated women and had yeah, relationships. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. Garner. Right. Know. He didn't pine after her the entire time. But I don't think Steve really had any relationships. He had a no. couple of flings and stuff. I mean, every time Farrah Fawcett Majors, his yeah, wife would yeah, show up, they would yeah. have a little smoochy smooch. Well, yeah. But he was true to her. And it's just, he, he always put everyone above him, but right. not in a martyr, self-sacrifice kind of way. Right. Just because he knew it was the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. So Lindsay Wagner would earn an Emmy Award in 1977 for outstanding lead actress in a dramatic role for her role in the Bionic Woman television series. A nice. first, first for a science fiction series. Yeah. Ever. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, the 70s, as we talked about with film and, 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 uh, and TV, 70s kind of after uh, uh, kind of after 2001 Space Odyssey, yeah. people started taking science fiction more seriously, right, and it right. wasn't the redheaded stepchild. Right. The, right. You know, it wasn't the man with the giant brain. Right, or, right. Or, I mean, Star Wars was nominated for Best Picture. Right. Yeah. And rightly so. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. Uh, Wagner was actually scheduled to be a passenger on American Airlines Flight 191 from Chicago to Los Angeles on May 25th, 1979, but suddenly felt very ill while waiting for the plane. So she skipped the flight, which crashed only minutes after takeoff, killing all 271 people on board and two people on the ground, the deadliest aviation accident to have occurred in the United States. That stuff is fascinating to me, the people that have some sort of premonition or some yeah. sort of situation. I think uh, Seth MacFarlane's supposed to be on one of the 9-11 planes. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, is that I did a weird... Because I didn't know, really know anything about this flight in 191, and I went down a weird rabbit hole. There's apparently video of this happening. Uh, they've never released it. They've only released the audio between the tower and right. the plane, but it literally was in the... Just seconds after taking off, and then it crashed into houses. What was crazy, too, was for years afterwards... Uh, all these weird kind of Rube Goldberg things trying to kill Lindsay Wagner would happen because <laughs> it was supposed to be her final destination. She, Yeah, they actually based Final Destination off of Lindsay Wagner on Flight 191. <laughs> and her subsequent experience. with uh, She just wakes up and goes, ah! Yeah. I thought I was on a plane. She survived it. She uh, survived all those attempts. More recently, she's appeared in Warehouse 13, Fuller House, and Grey's Anatomy. Warehouse 13 was a fun show. Did you ever watch that? I never watched it. It was, it was really one good. of those I wanted to, but then it just kind of fell by the wayside. It was in the, the heyday of the sci-fi network when they had, like, yeah. Eureka yeah. and all, Warehouse 13. Yeah. The, the shows that were fun. Very yeah. fun. Yeah, I miss those shows. In June 2018, it was announced that Wagner would co-star in Death Stranding. Wagner lent her likeness to the characters Bridget and Amelie Strand and voiced the former with Emily O'Brien voicing the latter and a younger version of the former. Yeah, it was crazy to see her pop up in that. Uh, I did not get far enough into it to have <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay Wagner appear in the game. Uh, it was her first role in video game and her first experience with the industry's motion capture, motion capture the capture. and voice acting technology. Sure, got, got, got a bloop. Uh, she's still acting. She's still working. She's still doing stuff. Yeah, she's great. She was probably my first... Super Crush. Oh, yeah. I totally see As why. Are you kidding uh, me? And and I've had a crush on her ever since, and uh, even to this day. I mean, she's her introduction in the Six Million Dollar Man. She is the most charming person alive. Oh, she's great. So Farrah Fawcett uh, actually played three different characters over four episodes in the Six Million Dollar Man. <laughs> Very wildly different characters too. <laughs> she was uh, married to Lee Majors from 1973 to 1982. Uh, he actually lobbied for her to be the bionic woman, but the producers passed in favor of Lindsay Wagner. Yeah, it was, it was a good. She, 
Lizzie Wagner is the girl next door, and Farrah Fawcett is the unattainable goddess of the uh, time. Yeah, and I, having around that time is when she was in um, Logan's Run, and having seen her acting ability, I'm glad they went with Lindsay Wagner. She was good in the Six Million Dollar Man, though. Sure, sure. Uh, uh, oh, so, went up really high on that. Sorry. <laughs> ah, ah. So, random speed bump. Uh, this, did you know if you knew this? The song "Midnight Train to Georgia" by Jim Weatherly. You know, "Midnight Train to Georgia." Ooh, yeah, ooh. it was a huge hit for Glass Night and the Pips. It was actually based on Lee Majors and Fair Fawcett's relationship, although highly fictionized. Weird. Here's the thing: Weatherly had called Majors a friend to chat, and Fawcett had answered the phone saying she was going to be taking a midnight train to Houston. And Weatherly liked the idea, and actually, for a long time, it was Midnight Train to Houston until a producer changed it to Midnight Train to Georgia. It sounds a lot better. Midnight That's Train to Houston. But that song is about. Lee Majors and Farrah Fawcett. That's crazy. <laughs> it's weird. It's just weird. Uh, other notable guest stars on The Six Million Dollar Man include... Joanne Worley, Joe Cap, Lloyd Bachner, John Saxon, Greg Morris, Gary Lockwood, William Shatner, George Takai, Noah Berry Jr., Monte Markham, George Foreman, Jack Colvin, Dick Van Patten, Dana Plato in her professional debut, Chuck Connors, Sonny Bono, Eric Estrada, Larry Sanka, Dick Butkiss, Carl Weathers, Louis Gossett Jr., Stephanie Powers, Andre the Giant, Sandy Duncan, one eye, Flip Wilson, <laughs> Elkie Summer, Frank Gifford, is it? It's Gifford. <laughs> Thank you. Joan Van Ark, Bernie Capel, Kim Bassinger, Gerald McCraney, Jenny Agator, Robert Loggia, Robert Loggia, Rick Springfield in his professional debut, Susan Summers, and John Delancey. Also, Rodney Allen Ripper. I don't know who's Rodney Allen. Rodney Allen Ripper was this huge child star. He started out doing commercials. He was in these Burger King commercials, the oh. Have It Your Way. Okay. And he uh, he was in the episode I was telling you about where where Steve is undercover as a longshoreman. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's staying at, like, this halfway house. And uh, the woman who owns it, Rodney on Rippy, is her kid. And he comes, uh, <laughs> he comes up crying and his bike is all mangled, and Steve's like, what, what happened? What's, what's wrong? And he's like, my bike, a truck ran over my bike, and it's ruined. It'll never be fixed. And then Steve's like, well, you got to believe. you got to believe in miracles. you got to believe in the spirits. And he's like, the spirits? And he's like, yeah, believe in the spirits. Believe in miracles. And so it's like, not anything about God. It's right. just the spirits, which was so odd. But that's the 70s for you, non-denominational. And so the kid's outside eating a sandwich, Rodney Allen Rippey. And he's like, come on, spirits, fix my back. Come on, spirits, come on, spirits. And his mom's like, what's going on? He's like, I got to th- th- think about the spirits to get a miracle. And she's like, why are you telling my kid about the spirits? You know, getting his hopes up or whatever. So, of course, Steve bends the bike back in, and, and he's like, the spirits helped. And then, but it's not done. His friend, who's a bully, is like, fix my bike. <laughs> and so everybody's like, it doesn't work that way if it's not. They only fix my bike because I believe in the spirits, and you don't believe in the spirits. He's like, I don't care. Either fix my bike or I'm going to kill you. And so he's really sad. And then, so the kid's mom, I know this is so convoluted, but this is the show. Uh, so the kid's mom gets kidnapped, of course, by the bad guys. And and Steve comes and he's like, where's your mom? He's like, oh, they took her. And he's like, oh, you got anywhere you could stay? And then the bully shows up and he's like, hey, kid. Take him home with you. And he's like, no, I'm not taking him home with me until he fixes my bike. Until the spirits fix my bike. 
He's like, look, they'll fix your bike. And then and then they were like best friends. I don't know. It was just weird. <laughs> and it made no sense. <laughs> All but right. somehow it worked. Yeah. But yeah. that's a Rodney Allen Rippy. That's the $6 million man. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, to maintain the show's plausibility, producer Kenneth Johnson set very specific limits on Steve Austin's abilities. He elaborated... When you're dealing with the area of fantasy, if you say, well, they're bionic so they can do whatever they want, then it gets out of hand. So you've got to have really, really, really tight rules. Steve and Jamie can jump up to two stories, but not three. They can jump down three stories, but not four. Oh. Okay. All right. Well, that, look, I like a show in a, in a movie that sets its own rules and then lives by those rules. Well, it didn't. It broke them all the time, <laughs> by the way. It jumped way more than three stories. Uh, Austin's superhuman enhancements are a bionic left eye, which has a 20.2 to 1 zoom lens along with night vision function as well as the restoration of normal vision. Uh, That's what it sounded like when you looked it. <laughs> the, it did. It, uh, the figure of 20.2 to 1 is taken from the faux computer graphics in the opening credits. You can also use it as like a scanner to find chip, like computer chips. Yeah, he does eventually. Yeah, he does it with gets his all these other powers. That uh, the figure 20 to 1 is mentioned twice in the series in the episode Population Zero and Secret of Bigfoot. Secret of Bigfoot. Uh, Austin's bionic eye also has other features, such as an infrared filter used frequently to see in the dark and also detect heat, as in the episode The Pioneers, mm-hmm. and the ability to view humanoid beings moving too fast for the normal eye to see, as in the story arc The Secret of Bigfoot. Yeah. Uh, which, again, was an insanely convoluted episode. So good. <laughs> One early episode shows the eye as a deadly accurate targeting device for his throwing arm. Which, oh, yeah. Man, did he throw stuff hard with that arm. Oh, man. They must have had, like, a catapult or something. It must have been so much fun oh, yeah. to beat the – do the uh, – <laughs> to shoot B-roll on that because you were just like, all right, now we get to fling a tire oh. 40,000 feet. Population Zero, when he finally realizes where the guy is with the weird sonic device that's killing everybody, right. they're in a van. And so what does he do? He doesn't run up to the van. He just starts throwing, like, giant rocks at it. Yeah. And he throws, like, 50. <laughs> like, it's just over and over. And the guys inside are like, what is that? Yeah. No, there were there were a lot of rocks. <laughs> A lot of things to be thrown. Uh, One early episode, I just said that, in Caden's original novels, Austin's eye was depicted as simply a camera, which had to be physically removed after use. Removed. And Austin remained blind in the eye. Okay. Uh, Later, Austin gained the ability to shoot a laser from the eye. Uh, This was in the books. The Charlton Comics comic book spinoff from the series also established that Austin's bionic eye could shoot a laser beam, as demonstrated in the first issues of the color comic, but neither function was shown on television. That would have been too goofy. Too far. Three stories, not two. (laughs) Uh, He had bionic legs. These allow him to run at tremendous speed and make great leaps. And his tremendous speed was so slow. Oh, yeah. Well, they realized it looked super goofy if they did the fast, the speed up. I only of all the episodes I watched, I only saw once where they did the speed up. There was maybe three times. He was had a guy in a wheelbarrow, and yeah. it was the it looked like it was Keystone Cops. Yeah. It was so it not was. good. And they did they had a couple of times where they showed him running fast, but it just it didn't work. So everything he did was in slow motion with. His, his uh, upper speed limit was never firmly established, although a speed of 60 miles an hour is commonly quoted, since this figure is shown on a speed gauge during the opening credits. Yep. The highest speed ever shown in the series on a speed gauge is 67 miles per hour in the episode The Palmyre Escort. However, the later revival films suggested he could run approximately 90 miles an hour. It's pretty fast. 
A faster top speed is possible, as an episode of the Bionic Woman spinoff entitled Winning is Everything shows female cyborg Jamie Summers outrunning a race car going 100 miles an hour. She's fast. Uh, in The Secret of Bigfoot, it's stated it can leap 30 feet high. Uh, in the later TV movies, Austin is showing leaping heights that clearly appear to be in far <laughs> excess yeah. of this. Yeah. It, it, whatever was convenient. Apparently, as he got older, the bionics got better. Yeah, well, he was used to them. Yeah. Uh, he also had a bionic right arm. Uh, has the equivalent strength of a bulldozer. Yeah, that arm was insane. I love the analogy. How strong is he? Strong as a bulldozer. Well, he picked up a lot of stuff. He did. A lot of cars. A lot of cars he picked up. The arm containing a Geiger counter was established in Doomsday and Counting, the sixth episode of the first season. Uh, he also had that, that thing you were talking about, uh, where he could detect things, uh, the, the scanner yeah. kind of scanner thing. Uh, also, it's worth noting that the show heavily implies that since Steve Austin was missing an arm in both legs, oxygenating the rest of his body was more efficient, allowing him to hold his breath underwater for a much longer period than a non-bionic person. Okay. That was part of the reason why, in the second TV movie, when he had to sneak into the whatever, the, the like, infiltrate something and then come back. Right. And the two sailors, like, were like, there's no way that somebody can swim <laughs> that far and that fast. So we're just going to wait 30 minutes and we're going to leave. Yeah. They and, didn't and know then, he was bionic. And then he was swimming and then and then depth charges and he almost died. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, other bionic benefits shown in the series? Bionic wood carving. Bionic heat sensing with his bionic eye to reveal that aliens were mechanical. Bionic eye hand coordinated to catch a fish. Bionic lawn mowing, window cleaning, sawing, pile driving, and canoeing. Bionic wheelchair rowing, bionic pillow fight, bionic carving of graffiti with a tree trunk. That was Jamie, by the way. Throwing a missile with the bionic arm, special scanner on his bionic hand to detect stolen microchips, bionic speed bag punching, and bionic jump roping, a flip-up access panel on his bionic arm exposing part of the internal mechanism, bionic digging, bionic chiseling, bionic juking, bionic screw fastening, and bionic wire stripping. The There's two bionic pillow situations. Oh, was there another one? There's a bionic pillow fight between he and Jamie. Yeah. And then there's this... One where he's captured, and he takes a down pillow and chucks it at a dude. Oh. And it explodes in his face. And oh, wow. It wow. It was great. And, yeah, I mean, most of the, like, chores and stuff we saw when he was – that was him doing his house. Yeah, yeah. His I mean, mom was, and dad would be like, hey, can we come help you? Be like, yeah, oh, I got it. Well, that was when, when his mom, he, like, goes and she's like, what? I'm going to need to clean behind the fridge. And, and he's like, well, I'll do it. I'll, I'll move the fridge. She's like, no, if you slide it, you'll ruin the, the linoleum. Ruin the and – and and then she leaves, like goes to the bathroom or something, and so he just moves it. And then of course she's like, "How did you do this? You ruined the wait. You didn't oh, ruin the floor. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, Mom. She must have been your apple pie." <laughs> Uh, drawbacks to Austin Bionics include not working at sub-zero temperatures, space radiation, and electrical malfunctions. Yeah, and every time it would malfunction, it would go. That's how we knew that it was 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 working. And the look on his face. Uh, The acting. So completely random tidbit. I didn't know where else to put this in the script. Uh, During filming of episode 20 in season four in the funhouse called Laugh in the Dark, a technician tried to move a strange-looking wax-covered mannequin hanging from a rope. Okay. When he did, the mummy's arm broke off in his hand. (gasps) Sticking out of the wax was a human bone. What? It was discovered that the mummified corpse was, in fact, 
arsenic-embalmed human remains of Elmer McCurdy, a Western outlaw who had been killed in a gunfight in 1911. Random. After he was conclusively identified, he was buried in a formal center ceremony of which many of the show's crew were in attendance. How creepy. I had heard of this story a long time ago. Yeah. did not know that this happened on the $6 million man. Ah, so it is true. It is true. Oh, wow. The guy, the guy was embalmed, and back in the day, they would he essentially became like part of like a traveling sideshow yeah. after he was dead. And then randomly got sold to some guy in Long Beach who got put in a warehouse, and then he started get. He was used apparently as a mannequin in a bunch of different stuff. Crazy, yeah. He he was a very. Does he have an IMDb page? I <laughs> he should. <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, so the show was a huge success and led to the offshoot show The Bionic Woman in 1976. Uh, it ran for one season on ABC, the Six Million Dollar Man's Network, but was canceled after one season. Tragedy. NBC picked it up. And ABC continued to air The Six Million Dollar Man. Uh, NBC aired The Bionic Woman. ABC right. was doing The Six Million Dollar Man. Because of this, Brooks and Richard Anderson as Oscar Goldman became the first known actors to portray the same characters as regulars simultaneously on two different networks. Yeah. good. For, I mean, it's crazy that they let them do that. It's these weird little trivia tidbits yeah. that I love because, as far as I know, no one else has ever done that. It's interesting. It's a yeah. stupid little trivia tidbit, but I love that. Wouldn't let it. They probably wouldn't be able to do it today. I, that was my thought. Uh, unfortunately, all good things must end, and both shows were canceled by the respective networks in the spring of 1978. I thought it was longer than that. I kept thinking, like, when did this end? It, it, it ran for five seasons, but the weird thing is that it ended on March 6th, 1978, which was one day shy of it being airing for five years. The show premiered on March 7th of 1973 and then got canceled on March 6th, 1978. Oh, it was a sad birthday for sad, little Jimmy that year. Sad, he sad was birthday. so, so sad. Uh, however, Steve Austin and Jamie Summers returned in three subsequent made-for-television movies. They were called The Return of the Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman in 1987. Mm. Creative title. <laughs> very, very. Uh, Bionic Showdown, although although I will say they did use The Return of like five different times <laughs> with titles. A lot of people returning, yeah. man. I mean, there's Return of the Bigfoot, The Return of the the the, the guy, the... Multi-face guy. Oh, yeah. Like, they had that, and then the return of... The well, that was the doctor played by Henry Jones. Yeah. He was... Uh, he, he, he kept creating robots. Robots. And, and, and But, again, there was this... There's this, like, respect that Steve had for the doctor. Uh, oh, the other TV movies that happened was uh, Bionic Showdown, The Six Million Dollar Man, and The Bionic Woman in 1989, which featured Sandra Bullock in an early role as a new Bionic Woman. Oh, yeah. Uh, they were actually trying to make that as a backdoor pilot to do a new Bionic Woman show. There were a few shows that looked like they were backdoor pilots that didn't actually... There was one that I'm pretty sure it was about this guy whose mind was expanded. Oh, yeah. And he could remember everything. Right, and I think they were right. going to make a show about like a him, but they never did. a computer kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah, yeah, basically. Well, because there was also like a bionic dog, and then there was a, a little boy that became bionic, and like well, a then there was a kid. A, well, there's, the kid technically wasn't bionic. He had oh. implants put in him oh. that ended up giving him extra strength, oh. but it it was a... Uh, but it was a glitch in whatever treatment he right. was having, and they had right. to fix it or it would kill him. Right. Okay. So I think okay. he was normal after. He, was, he wasn't bionic. And that was played by Dick Van Patten's kid. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Dick Van Patten was actually in that episode with his son. He oh, played nice. the shoe salesman. Oh, trying to get I love Dick shoes. Van Patten. Yeah. Uh, the last TV movie was called Bionic Ever, bionic Ever After uh, in 1994, <laughs> in which Austin and Summers finally get married yeah. and ends... 
the long, long will they, won't they lasted forever. By the time they're 60. I know. I know. Cares. Matrix reprised the role of Steve Austin in all three productions, which also featured Richard Anderson and Martin E. Brooks and Lindsay Wagner reprising the role of James Summers. The reunion films addressed the partial amnesia Summers had suffered during the original series, and all three featured Major's son, Lee Majors II, as OC- OSI agent Jim Castilian. Yeah, his son for a while was an actor. Gonna be, he was, they were trying to make him big. He was a TV guy, and he yeah. wasn't bad. It's just he wasn't his dad. It's just he looked and sounded enough like his dad yeah. that it just wasn't. It's kind of a knockoff situation. Right. It's a sad situation. Look, the Van Patten boys, they were fine because they didn't yeah, look anything yeah. like their dad, and their right, dad was a right. character actor. And, right. You know? But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think it was a, a, a little bit tough for him. Yeah. The first two movies were written in the anticipation of creating new bionic characters in their own series, but nothing further was seen of the new characters introduced in those produced TV films. The third TV movie was intended as a finale, finally ending the saga of the bionic woman and the Six Million Dollar Man. Uh, but that was not the end of the Bionic Man and, or sorry, the $6 million man, the Bionic Woman. Uh, Universal Pictures developed a screenplay in 1995 with Kevin Smith, but the outing never materialized. Uh, Smith's screenplay, screenplay was later adapted for the Bionic Man, an ongoing comic book series launched in 2011 by Dynamite Comics. Okay. Which I didn't realize. Neither so did I. I'm kind of curious to check that out. In December 2001, it was announced that Universal had pacted with Dimension Films on the project after Dimension pr- President Bob Weinstein saw it potential as a franchise. Mm. Yeah, Universal, well, he's not his brother. No, no, not. it wasn't his brother. Universal retained film rights to the original TV show, while Dimension purchased the rights to the Cyborg novel, as well as Kane's three other novels in the series Operation Nuke. High Crystal and Cyborg 4. Cyborg 4. Yeah. In October 2002, Trevor Sands was hired to write a new screenplay titled The Six Billion Dollar Man. Of course. But Dimension scrapped it when actor Jim Carrey pitched a comedic take on the material for him to star in with Scott Armstrong as writer and Todd Phillips as director co-writer. Filming was expected to begin in 2004, but it did not. No. I know. In a July 2006 interview at Comic-Con, Richard Anderson stated that he was involved with producing a movie of the series, but the rights were at the time in litigation between Miramax and Universal. Okay. And on November 6, 2014, it was announced that a feature film tentatively titled The Six Billion Dollar Man would go into production. Here we go. Mark Wahlberg was set to play Colonel Steve Austin with Peter Berg as director. Ugh. A combination of names you never want to hear. <laughs> well, look. Uh, Mark Wahlberg... He's got some performances that were great. Sure. Boogie Nights. Uh, Boogie Nights. Uh, that's uh, Scorsese. The Departed. The Departed. He, he was, was great in The Departed. Good in that. There's some other stuff. Like, he's done good some guys. Com- comedy stuff. He's good at comedy. That I, that I, there was some, like, some of the other comedy stuff that I... He's you know. good at playing a dumb guy. Yeah. Don't be playing professors or doctors. Uh, he should not be playing Steve Austin. <laughs> no, he is definitely not Steve Austin. You need somebody that's a lot more... Okay. He needs somebody who's going to come across smart. Yeah. Yes. You know? Yes. And I'm sorry, Mark, but you just don't. I know. But that's okay. You don't yeah. have to be everything to everybody. And Peter Berg is extremely hit or miss. He had his time when he did his documentary style, flippity floopy, shakety yeah. cameras. Yeah. Uh, you know, war movie crap. Uh, Friday Night Lights. Didn't he direct the movie for Ryan? Yes, Lines? he yeah. did. Um, but 
I don't know. I, I There is something. I don't mind Peter Berg as a director. His movies are okay. They're fine. There is something about Peter Berg that really bothers me. Yeah. Well, he was an actor first. I know. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's just something about him that thing. I just just bothers me. And I, I don't know what it is. I guarantee you that this would have been crap. I guarantee you this would have been a bad movie. Okay, well, let's let's finish this because there's still a possibility it's still going to happen. It's still going to be horrible. Uh, filming was set to begin in early 2015 for a theatrical release the following year. It did not. On November 2nd, 2015, it was reported that Burke had left the film and had been replaced by Damien Sivron, who also would write the film. Uh, he had He had written the most successful TV show in Argentina. Oh, okay. Um, he's supposed to be really good. I, so maybe it would be better. He'd be hungry. Anybody yeah. be better than Peter Bird. Oh, yeah. I don't want to see a documentary-style, shaky camera version no. of The Six Million Dollar no. Man. No. Uh, filming was set to begin in September 2016 with a de- December 22nd, 2017 release date. It did not. Uh, in 2000, or sorry, in December two, 2017, the Weinstein Company sold the film rights to Warner Brothers. As of January 2018, they hope to start filming the movie in mid-2018. And this is still all with Mark Wahlberg yeah. attached? In April 2018, they set an early to mid-2019 release for the film. The film was moved to June 5th, 2020 until Wonder Woman 1984 took over the release date. In April 2019, Travis Knight and Bill Dubuque would replace Sivron as director and writer. Travis Knight directed Kubo and the Two Strings and Bumblebee. Kubo and the Two Strings was great. Yeah, and, and Bumblebee was fun. I mean, it was he yeah. just he's good with animation and like that kind of stuff. So like, I, you know. Out of all of the bloated, gross, overdone uh, Transformers. Transformers yeah. I'm putting in quotes. Movies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Bumblebee was the least. Yeah, it was. It was fun. I, yeah. Bill Dubuque wrote The Accountant uh, and was a writer on Ozark. Okay, Ozark was good. I didn't see. Uh, I think I saw you the saw The Accountant. Account. It was. Uh, I think that was uh, Ben. I think it was Ben, ben Affleck. Affleck yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was. He's like an autistic hitman or something. Whatever. Yeah. I'm not so over Ben Affleck. <laughs> I'm so over him. Uh, unfortunately, even with these two on, uh, Wahlberg is still hoping to get the movie off the ground with a guest star from Lee Majors. Okay. Uh, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. He would be a great bionic man. Yeah, yeah. He's got that personality. He's got that everyman quality. Yeah. Uh, I think he would be great. I think Timothy Chalamet. No, I always say Timothy, Timothy Chalamet. Chalamet. I actually like Timothy Chalamet. Uh, I don't know if he would be a good bionic man. I, you know, I have not seen enough of his work to say if he would be good as a bionic man or not. He was in Dune. Uh yeah, I did. like I said, I didn't <laughs> see enough of his work. <laughs> but it means you don't need a buff action hero no, for this. No. That is not who Steve Austin no. is. Steve Austin is a reluctant hero. Right. Steve Austin is a smart guy who uses his bionics yeah. when necessary. Yeah. Or when he needs to cheat at something and up and show up his right, friends. Right. Or win a bet, apparently. Right. right. Uh but he always he usually gets caught on it, but not always. Because even now, at this point, I think Mark Wahlberg's getting too old. He's way too old. Mark I, Wahlberg is, is my age. He's in his yeah, 50s. Yeah. We don't need a bionic man in his effing 50s. These guys, I am sorry. I just watched the Mission Impossible part oh, one. Oh, did you watch Dead Reckoning? Yeah. Look, I don't know what happened in that movie. I don't care. All I know is that it's like... Oh, here it's like one long chase. Yeah, yeah. One long chase. And it's okay. Here's where old man Cruz is going to do some crazy stunt. And I'm sorry, but he's looking old. He's not. It's too much now. It's just I don't buy it. I don't buy right. him. 
I thought the movie was bloated. There's no reason why it needs to be a two-parter. It's ridiculous. But that's the thing is these guys have to give it up to the new guys. Yeah, they need they need to, to hang it up. Yeah. It's time to, to let it go. Not everybody is Harrison Ford. Not right, everybody right. can carry on this career until their 80s. You know, lean into the comedies. I know you guys are using your HGH and... And, and, and pumping in that testosterone to get your big old muskies, but you're still 55 years old. Right. Nobody wants that. Right. You know, it's like Bill Maher, 68 years old, and is complaining that people don't want him at colleges. Nobody wants an old man stand up at colleges. <laughs> I I always look for the 68 year old man at my college <laughs> yeah. parties. What are you talking it's about? It's just time to move on. And I think, yeah, I think, hey. Be a producer on it, Mark. Find a good guy to, to star in it. You know, it's it, I'm just I want them to give it. Here's the thing. Either they're going to do it one of two ways. Unfortunately, I think either they could do it like the Jim Carrey route and make it a, you know, a, a parody of itself like they did with so many shows of the 70s and 80s, whether it's the Dukes of Hazard or whatever. You know, they just kind yeah. of eat themselves and make this. Oh, we're just going to solipsistically make fun of everything and blah, blah, bleats. Or, you know, they make it this overblown, slick action movie that, that with all these set pieces and, oh, he's got right, his bionics right. and all this stuff. But that that's not – the show is a guy doing the right thing. That's basically all it is. But Henry Cavill would be great. Henry Cavill would be really good. Uh, Adam Driver. Oh, he's not charming enough. He Although, can be, but I think he could pull it off. Look, I would say that that little bit in the Star Wars tragedy trilogy, yeah, yeah, where he was the good Kylo Ren, yeah, was, was the best yeah, part of that right. trilogy. I agree, I agree. Uh, oh, your favorite Eddie Redmayne? No, <laughs> no, he could, that's in no. the Chalamet like, era. Uh, but no, the other the other one I was looking at was uh, I think I, it, well, I mean you know Ryan Gosling. It would be funny to have Ryan Gosling play. Both the yeah. Lee Majors parts. He definitely can do it. And that's why they got him for the Fall Guy, because he's, he is a Lee Majors type. You know, he's got that charm and that way about him that's super likable. All of these actors we're talking about has the charm yeah. and the intelligence right. to pull it off. This is personal for me. Yeah. Steve Austin was my first real TV hero. Steve Austin, I loved him. I had the doll. I had the, yeah. the the space capsule that turns in. The funny thing is, is they released the, the $6 million man doll, which was great. It had a uh, a little, you could look through his eye. Oh, and yeah. It, and yeah. it magnified. You could roll up his skin and take out oh, little, the little arms, chunks yeah. on his legs and his arms. Shows and then it came with this engine you put in his hand and, and the thing in his back. And it'd be like, chuk, 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 oh, nice, up. nice. Had all these really great things. But you had nobody to play with. You could play with your G.I. Joes because right, they're right. about the same size. Yeah. But then, <laughs> inevitably, then they, they released. I sent you all these great commercials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, if you have a chance on YouTube, look up uh, Six Million Dollar Man doll commercials because they are just amazing, these kids. But they, they released the Oscar Goldman. And I remember my friend got the Oscar Goldman. And we would play. So and, and it would just be like, okay, Steve. Go do this. And I'd be like, all right. And then Oscar would just stay in his office and I'd go beat up the G.I. Joes. I don't know if they – then they released this uh, guy kind of based on the robot 
with mm-hmm. a face that changed. Oh yeah, the I can't remember what they called him. It was mask like Omni Man or it was, Omni it was or like something. Mask Man or Mask Man or mask, something. Yeah. Maskader or something. But he uh, he had like this you know claw hand oh. and all these attachments and stuff. Never was on the show. He was just kind of right, made up because right. he needed a villain. He right, needed somebody right, for him to fight. Right. And I think they might have made a big a Bigfoot doll at oh, some point. Oh yeah. But I just remember just waiting, waiting until that show aired, you know? And it was yeah, at the time yeah. before VCRs and everything that if you missed it, you missed it. Right. So right. you had to watch it. Yeah. So I had to get my little outfit on, get my little doll, and I would sit there and just glued to it. And then during the commercials, I'd make up my own adventures and, and then play along. Those types of like multimedia watching, mm-hmm. which I was doing, which you know I was pretty ahead of my time. <laughs> that's I think what like got me into acting and got yeah. me into pretending because I I at that point in my life as a little boy I loved nothing more than disappearing into a fantasy world right. or disappearing into my GI Joes or disappearing just disappearing right right and hiding and playing and having my own space and my and not being bothered watching him as a little kid also helped define my moral compass yeah because you have a guy that's not telling you to do the right thing he's showing right. you how right. to do the right. right thing and how to do it in a way i think a lot of my compassion and a lot of the the the, the good qualities i have come from that and i you know that's, i'm not being hyperbolic yeah, i think yeah. you know we lived in a time where you had to walk everything off you know yeah yeah you yeah. get hurt walk it off you cry i'll give you something to cry about there right, wasn't a lot right. of empathy or compassion back then and i think seeing somebody on tv that had empathy and compassion yeah was revolutionary and it it really helped with my development i think the development of other kids too i don't i I mean maybe that's uh, overstating it or whatever no but i think that's true i mean it's you can't you can't discount popular media and like what it does because i mean we were going through a very big shift in america at that time you know between the realization of what the vietnam was Mm -hmm. and the fact that we couldn't trust our president anymore and like all this stuff like you know rights you had to you had feminism yeah. yeah you had to have somebody that you could look up to yeah. and say, okay, this is who's doing the right thing. Right. And it was essentially a kid's show. I mean, nobody yeah. smoked yeah. on it. There were very rarely would you see a cigarette. There was one time when he was undercover as a, a doctor and he had to use a pipe, but I don't think he actually smoked it. Right. I think he just right. used it for effect. Um, but it was essentially a kid's show that adults loved. And yeah. Yeah. because it wasn't a kid's show. Yeah. Cool. You know cool. what I mean? Show. Yeah. Again, yeah. A show that never knew really what it was, but that's what kept it fresh. It's, it, it appealed to everyone. It was so weird. Like some, there were there were definitely comedic episodes. Like I don't know if you watched the Moonshine episode. No, no. Which is basically you know, it was uh, jumping on the like smoking the bandit or the right. You know the the convoy or the trucker craze of the time. But during those types of episodes, he would like knock a guy out, and you'd hear. Oh, you yeah, hear the birds, yeah. like yeah. the cartoon birds. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah. they didn't use that all the time, but they used it sometimes. sometimes yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was just, you never really knew what you were going to get with Be- that show. Because there was also sometimes very weirdly real episodes. Oh, yeah. Where, like, I don't remember all that happens in it, but where he's, like, going to, he's with a woman, and he's taking a boat, 
and these guys show up and they're like, we're your guides. And he's like, uh, no, like I, I'm supposed to have my friend here yeah. and you're not. And so the guy who's running the boat from, he's like, Hey, like I'll hire you. You wanted to be my guide. Uh, you know, I trust you. And then of course the two guys are bad guys sure. and they attack them and they end up killing the poor guide who was like sunk his boat and like, and, and that's when he does the the canoe, like he carves a canoe out of a tree <laughs> right, with right. his bionic arm. Yeah. But like the guy, it's like, and he's just like, oh my god, like he's dead, yeah. like he's just. De- it's like, oh, okay, yeah. There was some brutality, you know, some brutal. I mean, you there. you never saw the, but but it was like he got attacked and he was gone. The yeah. boat was gone, and it was like, oh my god, like, yeah. and it was. I mean, they were. He was sad about it. It was like, oh, it's this guy that I, you know. Well, yeah, because I mean, the guy had feelings. He wasn't just a robot. Right. He was not just a robot. He was bionic. I think the thing that people probably remember the most are the Bigfoot episodes. Yeah. Because they were so huge. And you had Andre the Giant playing the Bigfoot at the beginning. Yeah. I think the only time he did it was the first. And then Ted Cassidy, who showed up as the big guy on everything. Yeah. He was an alien or this or that. He was on Star Trek. He was on all sorts of stuff. Big guy. Uh, He took over for the subsequent ones. But their take on Bigfoot was so bizarre. Bigfoot was a part organic, part bionic yeah. alien. Technically, Bigfoot was from another planet. Right. But there was also... But was also a cyborg. But they also of. talked about the native Bigfoot versus the uh, yeah. alien Bigfoot. Again, again, so convoluted. Right, right. And, you know, and they... And that was including the episode with the aliens who moved faster than everybody else, so you technically they could just appear behind you. But again, it made no sense. <laughs> no, but Stephanie Powers was hot, and yeah. she uh, yeah. and she and Steve had a little. They actually something. those Bigfoot episodes. Uh, they actually released them as feature films in Europe. Oh yeah, and uh, the best, the absolute best, was with, in Spain. They released it, and it was Le Hombre Bionique. <laughs> Le Hombre Bionique. Uh, yeah, it, it, look, you could see the zipper up the back. It wasn't the greatest costume in the world. But it didn't matter. They were huge, though. They didn't care. When he fought Bigfoot and ripped his arm off and he was a robot, you're like, what? What? Because Bigfoot was so huge back then. Yeah, yeah. Bigfoot was a part of our lives. They were featured. out of the headlines. (laughs) Feature films searching for Bigfoot. Yeah. yeah, You know? I I went to see that with uh, the old man. Yeah. Leonard Nimoy was the narrator in search of Bigfoot. Of course. That was uh, released. You know, they released all that stuff. The Loch Ness Monster, all of those cryptids were huge yeah. back then. And their take on Bigfoot was unlike any other take. And, right. And they, they doubled and tripled down on it. And my favorite was, and I guess this might be probably one of the origins of my love of enemies becoming friends. Because yeah. through the arc of the Bigfoot episodes, he and Bigfoot become friends. Yeah, yeah. And then by the time we get to Bigfoot 5, the last of the Bigfoot saga... Bigfoot gets awakened by some weird instrument that this lady's using to find Bigfoot that doesn't really explain. It's basically got a red and a green and a yellow in the middle. And then when the thing went to the yellow in the middle, she's like, there's something up there. (laughs) That must be Bigfoot. But the thing messed with his mind and you find out he was supposed to. Bigfoot decided to stay and not go to space. and not leave with with his his buddies. His friends. And and he's he's in stasis. And his mind is 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 being right is developing, and and when he's done, he'll be able to do whatever. But if you wake him up before the the process of is course. finished, he's gonna his primal side's gonna come, 
And they mark this like he has one milky eye and one regular eye because I guess he's kind of turning more oh, organic. How much drugs were the writers oh, doing? so great. <laughs> but Steve is like my friend. Yeah. My friend is in trouble. Right, right. And even though he attacked him, he's like, hello, my friend. Hey, my friend, how are you yeah, doing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's this whole part where he's in the water and they're trying to save each other. And then nice. there's these two hunters that are trying to get Bigfoot to put him in a zoo or have him, right. you know, in a dancing show. And <laughs> and he they rescue Bigfoot because he's frozen because his bionics froze too or whatever. Sure, of course. They bring him back. And he – and it's I almost teared up. It's so crazy. It's, I, I must, it was a kind of an emotional week for me. <laughs> I had some stuff going down. So I was probably in a state. But I'm watching the end of this episode. And on this really badly filmed computer terminal, and, you know, it's just, you can see all the, the, <laughs> right, the, right. the horizontal flips and floops because you couldn't really film stuff back then. Right, right. They had, uh, you know, he's like, all right, my friend, sleep well. And when you wake up, you, you, you're, you're going to be fine. And then the Bigfoot's like, I will be fine. You saved me. And he's like, until we meet again, friend, or whatever. And then it's like, friend. And I'm like, oh, man, they're, they're like good buddies. They're buddies, I'm getting yeah. the chills thinking about it right now, which is just so goofy. But, but that's how it was. It's well, the that, goofiest yeah. thing in the world. But it harkens back to me to a time of more innocence. And it's just funny to watch these things. A lot of these things, especially these things that I watched when I was really young. Right, right. And kind of see the origin story of me or my sense of humor or some of my values are really found in television. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, the, the things that I watched and especially this show. That's which, it. it Go ahead. That's the same for me when we, we will discuss Quantum Leap next week. I, I We're watching it now. I've come to realize why I'm much more progressive than I think I am because the show was. Yeah. It's just one of those like, wow, I was young and it was just me absorbing. Yes. And I know I totally hijacked the show because of my love for it. No, and no, you'll get, no. You know, oh, I'll get my turn. You're due <laughs> next week. It's the first time that I've really rewatched something that was so important to me as a kid. Yeah. And I haven't seen it since. Right. At least not any significant amount. I mean, yeah, caught yeah, a yeah. movie here or there. I'm sure I watched all the movies in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah. But it's just very interesting to me to, to re-experience something that was so uh, crucial in some ways mm-hmm. to me being who I am. But it really was a good show for kids to watch. Yeah. And it... It still is. Still is. And and it really it made me want to be an astronaut. Made me want to be a pilot until yeah. I realized all the work that has to go on. <laughs> but uh I'm still watching it. I got to the fifth season before yeah. before Today. I was hoping to finish it before yeah, but yeah. I still got I mean it's it's dance, oh, I, man. It's, it's not, a dance show. There's 20, a lot of episodes, man. A lot of episodes and each episode is fifty minutes because Yo, yeah, back, back in then the- if you haven't seen it, it's not gonna hit you the way it hit me. You're probably not going to, uh, you know, yeah, get as I, much out of it, but it. I, but I've been really enjoying it. Yeah, but so, you will enjoy it. Yeah, and and Lee Majors, he's, he's so good. He is kind of a forgotten guy in yeah. a, in certain yeah. respects, but he was the biggest star in the world in the seventies. Yeah, he and yeah. his wife were, and he and Farrah Fawcett Majors were on every single cover. They were the they it were couple. The it couple, yeah, and. Uh, the Fall Guy was still a fun show. The guy yeah. was 70s and 80s for me. And and I will always love Lee Majors. And I will always, always, always love The Six Million Dollar Man as 
My First Love. Yes. TV, baby. Check it out. It's on Peacock. Give it a watch. Go in with an open mind. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be worth it. Yes. It'll be worth it. you got to shoot my bionics. <laughs> we'll be back next week uh, with Quantum Leap. Yeah. We're going to leap. Uh, and I'd also wish that I could watch all of it before I end, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> oh. My bionics. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the man. Oh, wait, no. hold on. No, he skipped a line. Sorry. Uh, gentlemen, Redigo. Come. What? It's Redigo. I don't know what that is. Redigo. Is it Redigo Combat? No, just Redigo. Okay. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming, Saturday Night Live, already in progress. 